one of the top 25 business books I've read is The Wisdom of Finance. If CFO Bookshelf had a top 25 books Hall of Fame, The Wisdom of Finance would be included in the short list. The author is Mahir Desai. He's a Harvard professor. And the creativity he applied to pairing abstract and obtuse finance topics with literature, history, and movies. It was well executed. And I even found the book, it didn't just have education value. It was entertaining too. But if I could have one do-over on this book since I first read it, I would have read it with the book club. You don't just read this book. You talk about it with other people. And that is exactly what we're going to do with this title. We're going to go book club on you in this episode. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, The Wisdom of Finance. I think you're going to like this. CFO Bookshelf is far from a one-person production. We do have help. Emily is one of our research analysts, and she's been a huge help to the show. She also has a full-time day job working for Veterans United Home Loans with 28 offices nationwide. In 2020, Fortune Magazine named them as 100 of the best companies to work for for the fifth consecutive year. And not only is Emily a reader, she's ranked in the top 25% of all producers. So this title, given her role, it piqued her interest. So let's get started with this conversation. First of all, the wisdom of finance, first impressions, first impressions. Well, first of all, I, as someone that I, f- I feel like I'm a good in-between person in that I technically work in finance, but I don't consider myself to be a finance person. And I so I learned so much about the book, but what really appealed to me was just the, the tie to life, the tie to non-finance things. So it's, it was like that perfect bridge of like, what makes this relevant? Why is this important? Just it resonated with me. The author is a professor at Harvard. His name is Mihir Desai. And by the way, I had a chance to interview him. We It was twice, and we kept getting our times mixed up. And I'm actually glad, by the way, that was two years ago. And I'm I'm glad that we're doing it this way, because this is really great book club material. You may not remember this. Do you know why he wrote the book? Do you remember the story? It's really a good one. And I am trying to remember. He, so they have a class for graduating MBA students, and he was going to do a section, a class or a course on finance. And he thought about what could I do it on? Could I do it on maybe leverage buyouts? You know, something very complicated. And a friend just said, no one's going to care about that. So he came up with the topic of the wisdom of finance, but he hadn't really decided what to do it on until he got to, it was time to talk about it. So he talked about the wisdom of finance in the context of literature, movies, history, poetry, philosophy. And then he ended up writing the book and he couldn't just take a speech or his course and just put it in words he had to flesh it out even more. So then he had to come up with more books, more content. But I, again, the execution of this book is, I, I think he hit a home run. Do you agree? Oh, agreed. I, and a great variety of literature he's pulling from. That kind of impressed me because it just told me a little bit about his background and what kinds of books he appreciates. Could not agree with you more. Have you ever read or know the name Mortimer Adler? That that name sounds really familiar. So if you turn around, it's in one of my it's in my one of my bookcases. He wrote the book How to Read a Book, and he uses the terminology of active reading versus passive reading. I did read this book. I've read it more than once. I read it actively, and when I say actively, I mean in the middle of the book. I would stop 
for example, one of the books, uh, Tolstoy, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Well, it's such a short book. I just went ahead and read it immediately. And I think one of the movies, we may hit on it later, Working Girl, cute. I'm going to use the word cute 80s uh, movie. I ended up watching it at some point as I was reading the book. So I did read this actively. I, I made sure I purchased Pride and Prejudice. I, I know you love that movie, but I never read the book. So I ended up getting So I read this book actively. Did you kind of do that to an extent? Yes. And I just so many things as well, it, you almost had to read it slowly because there was so much to delve into. I would sometimes look up, I'd be Googling something just because. You know, I wanted to, if there was a book he mentioned and I didn't quite know a certain thing he was referring to, I wanted to know right then, obviously, to see how it really tied into the context. So I felt like it made me look a lot of things up. And I have, I think I've mentioned this too. I continue to think of concepts from this book and kind of think how they apply to other areas. So I, there's just a lot to fully digest with it. I have a book. You can't see it. It's at the edge. It's turned where you cannot see the title. It's called Valuation. It's, the seventh edition. And by the way, my people have talked to their people. Uh, the people who wrote it are with McKinsey. And because I did them a favor a few months ago, they're going to return the favor and I'm going to be interviewing one of the authors. So when I think of corporate finance, I think of that book and I'm not, I, I, I hope the authors aren't listening to this. The material is dry Whereas in this book, he could have made this a dry book. Listen to some of the topics that are hit. Insurance, risk management, value creation, evaluation, corporate governance, mergers, leverage, bankruptcy. And then there's a chapter on why everyone hates finance. Yeah, with this book, I felt like you couldn't ever determine from the chapter title whether it was going to be a chapter you really liked because you'd think, oh, insurance, maybe I'll skip this. But no, it might be one of the best chapters. It every, Like you said, everything was good. Well, what, what should have been dry was actually really, really interesting. And, and I'm going to go on my memory here. So, for example, in insurance, he brings up the Maltese, the Maltese Falcon and the parable of, is it Flitcraft? Yes. Which is which is incredible. It's a great parable. Uh, Risk management options and diversification. He brings up Jane Austen and Lizzie Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, Uh, which by the way, which by the way, I think Emily, my all time favorite character of any fictional book next to Tom in Uncle Tom's cabin. Cause I think, I think Tom in Uncle Tom's cabin is perfect. I want to be like him. But next to him, I think Mr. Darcy is my all-time favorite character of any fictional book. He is a lot like you. Uh, I don't know if I'd take that. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'd take that as a compliment or, or not. But I, I like the version of where he ends, ends up doing the right thing in the last half of the, the book. Uh, the, the value creation and valuation, he uses the parable of the talents in the New Testament. Uh, corporate governance. <laughs> this is hilarious. He uses the the producers, uh, the play in the movie, the producers with mergers. He talks about marriages. So he he hits these eight or nine topics, and they're in I would say kind of a random order. He may say no, Mark and Emily. They're not in random order, but those are the the topics. But again, he's bringing us stories, and he's had CEOs come to him and say this makes a ton of sense. So what topic let's, I'm going to skip the chapter on insurance unless you want to hit it. The The chapter on insurance is very, very fascinating. He he does talk about uh, this greatest poet. I think his last name is Stevens, Wallace Stevens, one of the greatest poets of his time, well known for poetry, but he worked in insurance and he equated life and insurance synonymously. And that's where we get into the story of Flitcraft and um, risk and, and variation. And it's excellent. So we'll leave people hanging so where they will want to read this book. So let's hit on 
mergers. And I got to put you on the spot. By the way, when you say you work in finance, we'll, we'll tell people that you're one of the top finance people <laughs> in no. one of the one of the top companies in its field in America. It's one of the isn't Veterans United. It's one of the most admired. We are the number one VA lender, dedicated VA lender in the country, which I, which I am proud of. That being said, I still don't consider myself to be a quote finance person, but. You could say you're in you're in the finance and the people and the sociology uh, yes. business. So, well, what is a merger? Can I put you on the spot? What is a merger? Well, I feel like it's when I think of a business merger, I just think two businesses are becoming one. So that you know, obviously, the basics of it. The the example he uses, and if we were talking. If it were talking over coffee, I would say, would you use this example in the book? He used the ver- the he used AOL in Time Warner to make his point. It, it was just an atrocity, and I'm going to list out. He makes some great points of how mergers can go awry, but the story he uses as an example surprised me. It's the working girl that came out in the 1980s, Harrison Ford. Sigourney Weaver and Melanie Griffith. Right. I did not know this. It was up for six Academy Awards. I don't know if it won any. We have any movie buffs. Let me know on LinkedIn. But apparently it was pretty good. I ended up watching it. And there was one, one line in the movie, one line where the antagonist wants to get married to one of the two protagonists. She says, let's merge. And that's where the author gets into that once upon a time, marriages between wealthy families were about a merger. Does that make sense? Yes. And by the way, you are the expert with Jane Austen. Wasn't that a time period of marriages? Oh, goodness. Yes. I mean, there was so much on the line when it came to planning your marriage. It was I feel like it was the way the way young people now prepare for their career. They're going to college at that time. It for women, it was the it was all about this preparation of who your mate would be, and it was like a, a merger. And because there was so much at stake, we'll be right back. Hey, you! Yeah, you listening? Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. I'm trying not to laugh, but (laughs) when you compare corporate mergers and marriages, uh, due diligence is critical. Uh, (laughs) Right? Funny working in real estate. Yes, due diligence is so critical. Uh, Filling a hole in the organization or in the relationship, that's not a strategy. <laughs> that's not why we get married. That's not so filling a hole. Uh, we don't race against the clock. Now you could say when you're planning the marriage, but don't that worry. being said, though, there's a lot of legitimate comparisons to be made when you're thinking about marriage. You know, marriage being a merger. The author says synergies are always overrated is I'm thinking in a marriage that that's hilarious. And then the cost, Oh oh my gosh, I love that. The cost of integration is always understated. (laughs) And isn't that true? And with relationships in marriage, the cost of integration is always understated. And I'll never forget the first year I got married. I didn't know it was like this or (laughs) I was, I, you may have to do this. Is the cost of integration highly under understated. You mean I have to go shopping and enjoy it and have a happy face? I, I just all, oh, you mean I have to, what if I don't always enjoy the in-laws all the time? So again, the cost of integration 
always understand. Really yeah, it did hit home for me. Uh, one of the topics, and we're going out of order. So if you already read the book, uh, we're jumping out of order just because of the interest level. I serve on a uh, compensation committee, and I just had a meeting about this this week, and I started thinking about agent principal theory during that conversation. We just had, I think it was just yesterday, and the theory of agents, well, first of all, an agent, practically speaking, is it could be an employee, and the principal can be the employer. Uh, you could use Bernie Madoff. Madoff. He was an agent, and the people who gave him money, uh, principals. Now, the story he uses of agents and principals is the producers. And I will admit, I'm sure you can find humor in the movie. It, it's, it's dark comedy. I'm not good with dark comedy. But as you look at his example, it is hilarious because you have a couple of people down on their luck. They were playwrights. They were looking for ways to make money. So they thought, oh, let's create the worst play ever, ever. And let's get some investors. And so they over they oversell it by a tune of 2,500%. Well, there's irony in the story. The play ended up being a smash hit. Well, then the investors wanted their return, not of, but also on their investment and of. Well, they, they couldn't give the money back. They'd already been spent, so they'd go to jail. So that's a case where they were bad agents. And his point was being that sometimes the principals don't have a lot to say. What right. what did you think of that part of the book? Oh, I, I re- absolutely related to that part. I feel like I get to see, obviously, a lot of agent-principal relationships through work, not just as I being an employee and then working for the company actually lending money for people to buy homes. But on the other side, I deal with other types of agents where you've got real estate agents and they're working with my mutual clients. And so I'm seeing... I sort of have both a, you've got different agent principal relationships there and everyone's got their own, their own incentives and their own kind of reason for doing things. So I, I thought it was really important to hit on this because we see this in so many areas of life where there, are, you could kind of identify principal agent relationships that you wouldn't at first see it as an agent principal relationship, but it kind of is. I'm going to assume that most people who listen to the show are employees, which means we are agents. Right, exactly. And as agents, I'm not saying everybody, but don't a lot of us want to make as much money as we can. Now, I'm fortunate. I do have a day job and I work with some fantastic CEOs. They're not looking to be stingy. Like we're looking for ways to give our money to our staffs, but they're looking ahead. They're looking ahead. Whereas employees, we want as much money now, but the, the principals, they're looking one year out, three years out. They're concerned about issues of relevancy. Are we going to be relevant three, four or five years from now? So, I would just suggest that as agents to remember, we need to remember principles, know the risks that they take every day to write us checks every two weeks, and also know that they're thinking of ahead. Now, my message for principles is that agents are volunteers. They are volunteers and they can leave anytime they want to. So I know agent Principle theory is all about how do we deal with the disparity between the two people at cross purposes sometimes. Exactly. So even though they have different goals and objectives, agents sometimes need to think like a principal. Principals need to think like agents. I, I just thought this section, I may have resonated the most with this because it's like, oh, yeah. The author is making some great points in this section. And by the way, I had to take nine hours of economics. 
I took two years of law. This is typical in finance and accounting. I don't ever remember hitting agent principal theory ever as a college student. So I, again, I enjoyed this part. I just found it extremely practical, not theory based, but very, very tangible. So that's, that's why I like this section right. so much. Okay. Value. So we do a chapter on value or he does, and I'm thinking, I wonder where he's going to go with this. And he brings up the parable of the talents, which I know you know very well. Before I go off on this a little bit, what did you think of him bringing up the parable of the talents in the context of value or value creation? I mean, I I honestly thought it was a good example because at least my perception, even growing up and being exposed to that parable of the talents and what I, I felt that it was always about was about how can you just, it's, is all you can do protect what you have? Can you not do anything more from that? Because life is not just about making sure nothing bad happens if you aren't creating good, if you're not creating value. So, so to me, it very important and finance so much ties into that. Cause when I do think about finance and ooh, I do know about it to me, so much of what finance is, is about, is about retaining value, expanding value. And it, to me, it's about always trying to increase the value of things. One of my favorite people in the world right now, his name is Bob. I think Bob is now in Prague. He listens to the show. He lives in San Antonio we both go down rabbit trails when we have conversations. Can I go down just a quick rabbit trail, but we'll come back? Of course. So the rabbit trail is, first of all, what is a parable? What is a parable? Man, but you've had you've gotten to prepare the answer. That's a little bit unfair. But I would say, if I had to say right now on the spot what a parable is, it is a story for the sole purpose of explaining a very specific lesson. To me is... I'm sure you have a better answer than that. It's not a, actually, if you think it's better, it's not my answer. Rick Marr, one of the greatest public speakers I've have ever listened to, or at least he's in the top 10. He's a, I don't know if he's retired or not, but he used to be a professor at Pepperdine University. And I heard him talk about parables. He said, Mark, and this is here in Columbia, Missouri. He said, Mark, Here's what a parable is. A parable is not a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's like, oh, that that sounds pretty touchy-feely nice. Uh, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He says, no, what it is, and you kind of said it, but he said it in a more eloquent way. Rick says a parable is when the storyteller tells a story to a listener and one of the characters is the listener. Ooh. And by the end of that story, you have to make a judgment on yourself. Now, as I go and look at all about at least half the parables, I believe that is a completely true statement. And the question for me is, as I think about Rick's definition, is like, who am I? Am I the guy with five talents, three, or one? And when I thought about this story, I went back to Rick's stories, like, who am I in this story? And I think that's why stories can resonate so much with us, not because they're good and there's a great plot line. You and I can sometimes identify with one of the characters. Wait a minute, that's me. That's so true. That's me. But... The, the, this story is interesting because I always viewed this story as a story of stewardship, which we don't talk a lot in colleges and universities. And I was a little surprised that he brought up the story because I thought, how does this apply to value? Except you have to remember how he's talking about value. It's about creating value because later in the chapter, he talks about alpha and beta, which is this guy's brilliant. So, in the context of alpha and beta, the guy with five talents doubled it. And the guy with three talents, he doubled it. The guy with one talent, he put it in the ground, didn't do it. So finance should be about 
creating value versus extracting value. And for those of us who've been through corporate finance in school, we know what alpha is. It's when it's when there's no correlation to the market. You're performing above the market in spite of the market. Now, it could also go the other way. That's alpha. Beta, some people get paid for beta. If the market goes up, well, you're going to go up. Well, should beta, the person who's the, the beta investor, should he get, should he get paid? So he's correlating alpha with value creation. And then he's correlating that with the five talent, the three talent person who went out and he went and doubled it for the master. So value creation is an important concept in finance and kudos for the way he put this in such simple terminology. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So if you think about it, you could say you're in the business indirectly of creating value because the people who leverage, which by the way is another concept in the book, their real estate could increase year over year. So that means you're helping to support the value creation process for people who are using your much needed service. That's nice feeling. It, I hopefully, hopefully it is. But anyway, really, really interesting concept. A, a couple more, a couple more. That's okay. I think you did bring up a good point about how stewardship is not a concept that you really hear talked about in any kind of academic setting or really any, you know, it's not in no kind of training setting. You know, the way I think of stewardship is I have a very negative attitude and I'll, I, I don't, I'll be transparent when I have to write these checks or now, of course, now we do it. Now we do it online through the IRS when I'm sending my money to the IRS, I have a very bad attitude and it's not always family rated because of the government's stewardship of that. Well, of that and well, and there's another reason it's like I could use this money. I could use this. I could use it myself. And then, and I have to remember a simple concept about stewardship, dude, young man, it's not yours. It's not yours to begin with. And then it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. So I always knock myself out of that bad attitude when I hit send electronically. You know, sometimes those, gosh, I mean, every year those numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, this stinks. And I just have to say, wait a minute, go back to the story. It's not yours. Get over it and get a good attitude. So anyway, I appreciate the bringing that back up on uh, stewardship. Hey, one more item, or actually a couple more. One of your, I happen to know, I have some insight. Yeah, my I, favorites here. Yeah, you love the story. Who Who is Lizzie Bennett? Ah, uh, Lizzie Bennett. So I, Lizzie Bennett is, in a way, she is, she feels more like a modern woman to me than she does like someone from the era she's in. Wait a minute. First of all, Lizzie Bennett fictional character, what book, and who's the author? We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast, which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. So Elizabeth Bennett. Elizabeth Bennett is the main protagonist in Jane Austen's most acclaimed work, Pride and Prejudice. And may I make a comment? And because I'm a little bit older, I feel I can get away with saying some things. We live in a we live in an era, and again, this is the cynical part of me. We live in an era where it's like we got to watch everything we say. It's like at the end of every day, at the end of every day, it's like, did I say something that offended somebody? <laughs> did and and that, now, thankfully, I have two ladies in my family. They're going to let me know, but I just want to make something very, very clear. And I don't care how this comes across. It should be good. Um, 
it may sound like a sexist comment. I just want to make it very clear. Guys, it's okay to read this book and to like it. Because when I, when I read it, it's like, this is a good book. I get the story. And the, the one of my favorite people in the book, he's a good dude. He's all right. But the story is outstanding. And he's not a softie either. He's not a softie he's a, either. He's a, you know, man. So it's, it's, this is a, again, this is not a, I think a lot of people equate Jane Austen in girly women, books. Women readers. Now, yeah. I didn't say girly. You said that. Women readers, a female audience. I'm just saying that I would love to know the male audience of this book because, again, it's, it's good, it's good literature. But it's also a great story, great character. So I just want to point that out. Well, it's got a lot of sure. intelligent humor in it. It's very well, yes, that too, that too. But anyway, I interrupted. Keep going. I'm <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, so Elizabeth, I think what what's great about her, she's not the oldest in the family. Usually, most families at that time, everything was about that the oldest daughter. But what's important in this story is you've got the second born here, Elizabeth. She has definitely were were made to be to see the the strongest personality. She has very very strong opinions, and it's obvious that she, even though she obviously understands the importance of what her family is expecting of her, the point she's at in her life as she hits her late twenties, and she understands the concept that there is a window of time where if she does not end up in a in a marriage relationship, really by the end of a certain window, she's going to end up really, really poor and burdening her family financially for literally the rest of their lives. But at the same time, she very strongly has personal feelings about the fact that she doesn't think that marriage should just be a, an arrangement, you know, or, you know, use a term from earlier merger, even though at her time marriage was about really about mergers. It was about, you know, it was making sure that you were cared for in the future, really, it was ex- it was very important insurance. So Lizzie is very torn between the fact that she understands the responsibility that she needs to secure this for her future, and the window is closing. But knowing that she doesn't, she's doesn't have great options at the time. She's not going to compromise. She knows that it's going to compromise her happiness permanently if she makes a bad choice. And if you make a bad choice, it would be as bad as if she ended up destitute. And she knows that too, so she's not going to rush into something. So I think she's just a really smart character that is having to make some really difficult choices. I should have been counting the number of times you said options. Again, the the chapter is risk and options, and you said options I may have been almost three times. And Mr. Is it Mr. Collins? Did I get that right? Mr. Collins. He he makes a, he proposes to Lizzie. And she says what? She says no. Um, One of my favorite parts, though, is what he says to her when she says no, because it ties into this risk and options. He says to her, you do know it is by no means certain that another offer will ever be made to you. Risk and options. This is probably the best example, the best analog for this complex topic Options, by the way, I took a course, uh, I took a course several years ago in options and I thought my brain was going to just split in pieces. It's too, I'm sure people may think, oh, Mark, that's easy. That's easy. You, you just, you just, you weren't thinking or, but options is very complicated to me. And I just, it was just, I give up. It's too abstract for me. And he made this so simple to understand. Some people may say he made it too simple, but what you just said, that is a perfect example. So risk and options, risk and options. She ends up making the right decision, doesn't she? Yes, yes. Uh, again, Mr. It is a high, extremely risky what she did, though, to say no to the people she right, did to hold right. out for what she thought was the most valuable. Because if I think if that hadn't worked out, she might have never ended up married, which is really important to understand about that story. She was facing an ultimate risk, but it ended up with the ultimate reward. For people who don't want to read the book, which movie version is the best? Didn't PBS do a, is it more like a six hour? So hard. 
The problem with the six-hour version is it really uh, dries out the story. It takes away what to me is the spirit of the story. Like when I when I watch that six-hour version, I it technically follows the book very well, but I'm never moved. I'm never like, oh, I'm rooting for them. I just it feels very um, dated, and it just honestly the the Kira Knightley version that came out um, when I was I'd say in high school. I saw that talk talk about bringing this the spirit of the story to life. Also very easy to watch. It's like, you know, hour and a half, two hour long movie, it's great. It brings the best parts of Pride and Prejudice and that's I think Jane Austen would watch that movie and think, "Yes, this I think, is what I, thought, I meant." I thought the characters, the ensemble is excellent. Uh Donald Sutherland, I don't think you could have picked a better he did father. Such a great job. He, yes. he was excellent. Uh, you mentioned Karen Knightley. The only problem with her is she might've looked too nice she, for yes, the role. I admit she was much too beautiful. She was, she was amazing. I think in the store, she's supposed to be a little bit plainer, but Plain, I think right. she did a great job having that spirited stubbornness of Elizabeth Bennett though. And one more thing. The soundtrack is excellent. Oh my goodness. I was going to bring that up, but I didn't the want to go down a rabbit trail no, the soundtrack, on how that's the, one of the best soundtracks of all time. Soundtrack is excellent. I own it as I do with many, many uh, great movies. Excellent. So there's two more I just want to bring up. Bankruptcy. By the way, let's do a little, let's do a little Stump the Expert. Want to play Stump the Expert? So two people... In the United States, we have a global audience, but in the United States of America, only two people have signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. Emily, who are the two people? You know one of them. Oh, man, this is a tough one. I feel Thomas Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson is one. Who else would it be? Well... Because you don't know both, we will send you home with some very nice parting prizes. When I was a kid, I thought they were saying party prizes. Like, huh? What? Party prize? I don't get that. <laughs> That's funny. The other person was Robert Morris. I Did didn't Robert know that. Who? Robert Morris. Robert Morris. I, Robert Morris should have been on the $10 bill. Washington wanted him to be on the cabinet the first secretary of commerce and Robert Morris said he couldn't, he had too many personal things going on. He did help to fund the battle of Yorktown and very well known, very well revered. Obviously again, he's a signer of these three historical documents, but things went awry for him. He was an investor in real estate. And as we know, in this modern era, real estate has ups and downs. There are cycles, good cycles, bad cycles, mountain peaks, troughs. You went bankrupt. And I know you learned as a young person that people who went bankrupt many years ago, where do they go? To prison. Debtors prison. And it was embarrassing. It was an embarrassment to go to prison, debtors prison, People were looked down upon. It's like you are a failure. You're a failure to yourself, a failure to your family, a failure to society. That was a treatment given to this extraordinary historical figure of Robert Morris. And as the story goes, I, by the way, I did not know this until I read the book. Washington goes to visit him. So he risks getting scarlet fever and God knows how many other diseases he could have been exposed to, but this was his friend. And even though Robert Morris died penniless, something good did come out of this. Do you know what that was? The first bankruptcy law was passed in, I think, the early 1800s, but as a result of Robert Morris. And again, I did not know this. And I so had never realized that. The, the author does an interesting job. He, he says, bankruptcy, is it about death or rebirth? And he, so in the chapter, and I'm not going to get into this unless you want to, but he uses some of the examples of the airlines that 
perpetually go bankrupt. They take advantage of the bankruptcy laws. So the author does remind us that, yeah, you can, bankruptcy is meant to give people a clean slate, but it's not a tool to take advantage of to benefit yourself. Yeah, I completely agree. I really struggle with this chapter and the just some of the stories of it being used in the corporate world in ways that I wasn't aware of. And I just think it, that that feels real a really, really bad practice. I don't see how we could have a strong economy when we have this these kind of bankruptcy behaviors going on in the corporate world. It's kind of weird to think about. The last topic I want to hit and the book Oh Pioneers is brought up. And I ended up that's that ended up I didn't read the book. I listened to it. I made a trip down to uh, Little Rock listened to the book on on the way and back was able to, to get through it oh pioneers is is brought up it's the the is it Cather Willa uh, Cather Willa, Willa Cather oh Willa or Cather I, I never okay. knew how it was pronounced Cather Cather I, I have no idea and so the book is oh pioneers and the protagonist of the book is Alexandra and she works on a ranch and the reason he brings this up it's the last chapter. And he talks about how finance, people in finance have been demonized. And I completely get it. We tend to think of the bad people in corporate finance. And one of the books I've read, it's fiction. It's a trilogy. One of the books in this trilogy, it's called The Financier. And the he's not the, he's not the protagonist. <laughs> he's the main character. His name is Frank. Cowperwood, Frank Cowperwood, he has to be, Emily, the worst character I've ever read in any book. He's despicable. (laughs) And when I think of finance people being demonized, yeah, I get it if you've got Frank in your mind. And I don't necessarily recommend the financier unless you just really want to read a, a, a book of his, a historical piece of literature that's about finance. And again, he is he's the lowest of the low. And he's definitely the guy who did not create value. He extracted value from other means. Whereas Alexandra is completely different. She started buying up land around her at depressed prices. She knew that these prices would come back someday. Some of her peers thought, you're crazy. Some people would end up moving, but she kept at it. And she's also a giver. She gave of herself. She gave of money to other people. So he ends the book using her as an example. And I, by the way, I love the book. And he makes a great point. Uh, well, I think when we t- think of finance, we probably think of the worst people, the scum, maybe think of Gordon Gecko, But there are some really good people uh, who are in finance. Um, Jamie Dimon comes to mind. I would love to meet him. I'm, of course, I'm thinking some people say, yeah, who wouldn't want to meet Jamie Dimon? But there are some great financiers in this world. I, I think you can even throw in Warren Buffett in this category. So good people exist. And by Alexandra of O Pioneers, great, great book. And I like the way he paired that topic and that story together. Do you remember the Yeah, I do too. The last question I have for you is did you end up reading any of these books that he mentioned in the book? I have not yet just because I kept having reading obligations one after the other after that book clubs and things like that. But I have there are a couple from that book that are still on a list now of mine to at least try and read here in the year 2024 just because they were mentioned. The Tolstoy book for sure. Um, uh, How Much Land Does a Man Need? I really wanted to read that. It's a short parable. You can read it in one hour. I read it. As I think I mentioned earlier, I read it right in the middle. I was like, okay, I'm going to pick this up and see what he's talking about. I'd never heard the story before. It is, it's exceptional. It's one of those books where just put it on the calendar and just read it every year. Yeah. 
read it every year. It's it's to me it's a healthy book. So I read that book. I, I mentioned Obineers. I read Pride and Prejudice, and then there are a couple of movies that I watched. One of them, um, Working Girl. I really re- it. Yeah, I too had that perception. I realized that that had actually been a pretty big movie at that time, and I just you know big cast. I think really good story. So that's on my list for sure to watch. Couple of the last questions. Do you recommend the book to other people? Oh, absolutely. Who, yeah. Who, who who could value out of reading this book? I mean, I think anyone really, because I I don't think that it's it gets into so many so much finance lingo or so much complicated stuff that any adult, even completely outside of the finance world, I think could get a lot out of it. In fact, I mean, I think for those that maybe are aware that they don't fully understand a lot of concepts in finance and are kind of intimidated to pursue learning more because then it's, you know, that world of finance, finance people. It's a really good kind of, um, kind of like a gateway book to actually, if you want to know a little bit more about finance, you know, and you're, I think it's a really great way to learn more and just maybe apply it in a more general way to your life. Even if you're not working in finance, this would be a good college course a college course just on this book. I would have loved a course like that. I I would too. And then the last question, it's a little bit off topic. So we've been hitting a lot of these great works of of fiction, literature, the company you work in, they do book clubs, don't they? Lots of book clubs. Can one of the, one of the books you all read and I read it two years ago and we didn't know it at the time. It was turned out to be coincidental East of Eden, East of Eden. So how does that book club work? What do they do? So generally, most of the book clubs that we have at my work, the, you know, we're basically initially, we're all reading at home, we're reading a certain amount, and then we're really discussing, like, not just kind of what happened, but what are the main themes? What are, what's the writer really trying to say with saying things a certain way? What's, what's this part of the story important for, especially with this really heavy literature like East of Eden, it's a long book that, you know, sometimes you really do want to delve into why does he talk so much about this particular little thing here? Well, you may think this is getting off the topic even more so, but I'll come back and explain why I asked the question. How many employees in this company? Uh, We, we peaked at just over 5,000. Now, since we are a little bit in a down year where we're not massively hiring, where we are in the, we are under 5,000 now, but we're, where it's still near there. So I bring that up to make a point. Why do they do book clubs in a company of 5,000 people? It's a very great way to really develop relationships with those that you don't necessarily work next Bingo. to. And it, you know, it's a very great way to really co-mingle with other people. I, one of my favorite aspects, especially when I, Went from being in a book club where it was nonfiction, did uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Great book. Now, the thing in that club, it was a good group, but there were a lot of people working in my same department in that group. And I think the reason why is people that work on the production side, which is my department at work, they're very driven. It's about numbers. It's about hustling. It's about a lot more about that. So when I actually joined more of a literary group, East of Eden, I was actually the only one in my department. Everyone else, you had people in legal, people to design. Um, so it's been really cool having people that have completely different roles in our company, you know, and a really great way to meet different people that do something completely different because then they have a completely non, well, non-finance perspective actually on some things. I think you ought to recommend this book to the the group. I think it'd be an interesting. This would be a great one to read for sure. What are some of the books that are potentially being? Actually, so many books that uh, you have recommended before, good business books I see all the time are books that are getting read there. Um, um, The Never, is it Never Something the Difference? What is it? Never Split the Difference. Never Split the Difference. That one, I keep seeing that get read in different groups. Um, So that one's been read a lot seen Atomic Habits on a couple different ones. A lot of books like that are all, are being read. And then you've got some fiction ones, but definitely a lot of like, you know, books where it's challenging you basically to incorporate some you know new strategies in your life, that kind of thing. James Clear responded to one of my requests. I said, 
would you mind being on the show? And he comes back and he says, how many listeners do you have? And I said, not enough for you. And he said, he, he, he thought that was funny. And he said, well, all the good luck to you, but I still like James and still yeah. like the, still like the, the book. Well, I just think that's neat company that size and they do book clubs. I, I, that just, that is so very, very cool. Well, anyway, I know you're busy. I thought it'd be fun to talk about this book. I love this book. It's a book I will be reading. I think I've read it three or four times already, not counting and listening to it. It's just, it's a book that's, that's sticky. I feel like I'm I learned you, something new. Out I'm glad of it. you gave this book to me. I feel like it definitely is the most finance book. I probably, you probably could have gotten me in a lot of ways in the, some of the things it's it's discussing the stock options, the insurance, definitely a little bit new territory and that being covered in books I was reading, but such a good book. It is, but it's not imitating. No, either. no, not at all. I wouldn't have ever thought I could read a book with a whole chapter on insurance and it not be boring, <laughs> really bad. Boring. All right. Well, again, thank you very much, Emily. Thank you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. This book takes the unorthodox position that viewing finance through the prism of the humanities will help us restore humanity to finance. That's according to the author. I completely agree with it. Do me a favor, please. If you have not read the book, and if you do, let me know what you think about it on LinkedIn. I want to know if you liked it as much as I do. Or if you have read it, let me know. I, again, I would love to hear. It's, it is an excellent book. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.